0: I am one of the least political people that you'll meet, but today we dive in headfirst on a discussion of some of the things going on in the political scene here in the United States and how Christians should deal with it, but we do it with the 100% right person. So today I have a great one for you. Dr. Russell Moore is on the show, and I'm so glad that you're listening to the All Things All People podcast. I'm Jeremy, your host, and thank you for checking out the show. If you haven't liked and subscribed and left an iTunes review, make sure to do that. I would love to to hear your thoughts on the show. If you ever want to reach out to me, you can follow me at allthings.allpeople on Instagram or email me with your questions, uh, your your comments at jeremy at allthingsallpeople.org. I would love to hear from you. So when I first got Russell Moore to agree to be on the show, of course I was excited. I mean, here is a guy who not only is he the president of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, he's involved worldwide in issues of persecution in the church. And, and as you're going to hear, in, in, even in regards to other peoples of faith who are experiencing persecution from their governments, from people in power, uh, he is a strong advocate for uh, Christians worldwide uh, for the rights to, of the unborn so many other issues as you're going to hear. But he also is somewhat involved in helping Christians navigate what is becoming more and more a difficult political realm for Christians to navigate. And so when he first agreed to be on the show, of course I was excited, but then I realized he would be on the show right before the election. And then we uh, we lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who of course was a giant in the Supreme Court, and the issue of President Donald Trump replacing her took center stage and I thought, well, goodness gracious, I got to talk to Dr. Moore about that. So you're going to hear him talk about that. You're going to hear him talk about uh, the confrontation that he had with President Trump in 2016. You're going to hear us talk about the issue of abortion and the potential revisiting of Roe versus Wade and what that means for Christians. Um, so, but listen, if you're like me and you don't necessarily love politics, I encourage you to to listen to this episode because I think you're going to be surprised at how Dr. Moore engages with the, with these issues. He's not a pundit, as he says, he's a Christian, and uh, as you're going to hear, uh, he 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 deflects all of the the popularity and everything that's come along with his position. Um, but instead just views himself as a Mississippi boy who relishes in the compliments that his grandmother used to give him over the compliments that the Wall Street Journal written about him and so I think you're really gonna enjoy this one like I said if you do make sure to share it on social media if you're an iTunes user leave a review and a five star um, would love that but more than anything I just hope that you're blessed by this I hope that this episode helps you get through the next month and a half of what might be one of the most difficult elections of of our country's history specifically um, I know in my lifetime but remember that our King is Jesus Christ that our hope is not found in anything temporary here on this earth. Our hope is found in our salvation that leads us not just into an eternity in heaven, but being rescued and redeemed and changed in a holistic way here on earth. And so our hope is even for this time, no matter who is president, no matter how ridiculous the debates were last week, and no matter uh, what we're dealing with, whether it's pandemic or anything else, Jesus is our hope and he is our king. And I think that you're going to hear Dr. Russell Moore uh, allow that to shine through in his attitude and how we talk about these things. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get to it. My next guest was once described by the Wall Street Journal as vigorous, cheerful, and fiercely articulate. He belongs in an exclusive club as he has spoken in front of a Pope and been tweeted about by a president. He was named in 2017 to Politico magazine's list of top 50 influence makers in Washington and has been profiled by such publications as the Washington Post and the New Yorker. He is president of the ethics and religious Liberty commission of the Southern Baptist convention. ERLC is dedicated to engaging the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ and speaking to issues in the public square for the protection of religious liberty and human flourishing. He is the author of many books, including forthcoming The Courage to Stand, which is actually coming out this Tuesday. It is my honor and privilege to have on the show today Dr. Russell Moore. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, for, for those listening, be sure to follow Dr. Moore on all of his social media accounts and the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. Those accounts are linked in the show notes, um, but also be sure to check out com for all of his articles, a a vast archive of articles and event information. Um, And whenever COVID-19 is done, even speaking engagement, uh, booking opportunities and things like that. Um, Dr. Moore, so the Wall Street Journal, that that description of you as vigorous, cheerful, and, and fiercely articulate, that has to be one of the best compliments you've ever received in your professional career, I imagine.
1: Oh, I don't know. Uh, I think, uh, most of my best compliments came from my grandmother. Okay, (laughs) Those are are my favorites.
0: (laughs) Well, and so that, that right away shows something that I greatly admire about you. And I think anybody who's aware of you has been following the last decade of your career as you've, you ventured from a pastor to uh, a professor at the Southern Baptist seminaries and now the president over ERLC. Um, you have this large footprint, like you said, 2017 political magazine featured, but yet every time I hear you talk, it seems like you're right there in a pulpit in a small Southern Baptist church telling anecdotal stories and, and kind of what, what's the key for you to staying um, the Mississippi hometown boy, as opposed to getting sucked into this big personnel uh, Russell Moore, you know, I, I'm sure there's a temptation to lose a little bit of that, that feeling of, of being a, a small town Mississippi boy.
1: You know, it probably, I don't know, but it probably has a lot to do with my family. And yeah. so um, I have a wife who's really grounded mm-hmm. and, uh, and has always been grounded. And uh, she's somebody who would be perfectly happy if, uh, if I said, we're moving to Fairbanks, Alaska uh, tomorrow tomorrow. <laughs> uh, she, she would be just as happy with that as she is, uh, doing this. And so that, uh, that probably
0: has a, has that that might have something to do with it. Yeah. Our wives have a way of keeping us humble. Yes. Uh, Well, well, so for those of you who, who are listening to this and and aren't familiar with you, can you just briefly, um, and we're going to get into more nitty gritty of kind of what your ministry has looked like all these years and what the last, you know, four to 10 years have looked like for you, especially as you're, as you have grown in people knowing you around the country and around the world, but can you just briefly describe like, what is Ethics Religious Liberties Commission and what does it mean to Southern Baptists like myself?
1: Well, it's about 100 uh, years old, a little over 100 years old, um, Goes has gone by various names, but we really do two things. One of those things is to equip Christians and Christian families and Christian churches to deal with moral decision-making, ethical decision-making. So everything from... Um, how, how do I think through a living will when it comes to my elderly parent to uh, what can our church do about sexual abuse or or, or crisis pregnancy or, or those sorts of things uh, to personal uh, sorts of ethical uh, decisions as well. So that full range of of, uh, of moral decision making. And then secondly, to speak on behalf of uh, Christians and churches in various um, cultural, um, cultural enclaves of, yeah. of uh, influence. So media, government, um, a lot lately in terms of the tech industry, mm-hmm. because there are a lot of uh, ethical implications uh, there, obviously, uh, and, also, um, and also internationally. Uh, so dealing yeah. a lot with uh, persecuted uh, Christians and right. other uh, religious minorities uh, around the world, all mm-hmm. of those uh, sorts of issues.
0: Yeah. And and I've seen the footprint even in these last few years grow from being more involved in politics than maybe before these last 10 years. But even here recently, I've seen you mention a lot about um, the the Uyghur or Uyghur uh, yep. genocide and persecution, which for those who are, who are unaware, um, might seem strange for two Southern Baptists to be talking about, but it's a group of um, ethnic Muslims in China who are being uh, persecuted heavily. And, and I've heard you, it's, I, there are very few Christians I've heard talk about that, but you are one of the few. Um, and is that more of a Russell Moore uh, issue or is that Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission?
1: Well, it's both uh, because uh, the Uyghur people, of course, first of all, are created an image of God and and our neighbors, and they're being uh, hauled off into concentration camps and enforced uh, labor and attempted genocide uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. But also because, uh, along with being image-bearing neighbors, uh, what the Chinese government is doing to the Uyghur people, they're also doing in other ways to other religious minorities, yes. including, including Christians. Mm-hmm. And so the, the real issue for the Chinese government, as with a lot of these governments uh, around the world, uh, really wherever they, they fall, is if you have a people who have an identity in something that is transcendent from mm-hmm. the state, yeah. uh, that is a threat yes. to those uh, totalitarian, authoritarian states. And so they, they try to uh, come after you. Mm-hmm. And so, with the with the Uyghur people, uh, one of the really concerning things about that is, um, is is the fact that many people in the world don't even know that this is yeah. taking place. They mm-hmm. assume concentration camps or something uh, long in the past, yeah. and sadly, that's not the case. Right.
0: And I think it's so important for for those listening, for those who whether they're familiar with you and your ministry or not, to understand as Christians, we we need to be concerned with. Any persecution, um, it, maybe even especially if it's non-Christian, because our response to that is so indicative of the groundedness of our faith and what we actually think of, of humanity. Um, so I, I've personally been greatly encouraged by seeing you and and um, the commission stand up for that. I think what's what's interesting is if somebody has only heard of you once, um, it might have been in these last four years as the the political culture and landscape has changed quite a bit. And I have to be honest, when you uh, first agreed to be on the show, uh, it was before uh, election season began and it was certainly before we had a Supreme Court nominee and in all of the conversations of the last uh, few, few weeks. And so I just have to ask, um, because it's so interesting to think that just four years ago, uh, you and our, our president had a somewhat infamous, I don't know, even know what to call it, uh, we'll say confrontation. Uh, leading up to the 2016 election, when after uh, criticism of him as a candidate, he said about you in a tweet, Russell Moore is a truly terrible representative of evangelicals and all of the good they stand for, a nasty guy with no heart. I have to first say I disagree with that. Um, <laughs> What I I just have to ask, what what was that like experiencing harsh criticism from the man who would become president? And how do you feel now, looking back on the last four years, uh, how do you feel now about President Trump's first term?
1: Well, I'm where I've been for 25 years. So, uh, you know, other people see things differently, but I'm -hmm. I'm where I've always been on those issues. It didn't uh, bother me. Any of those things uh, didn't bother me at all, especially Mm -hmm. because... um, yeah I mean that's that wasn't something that I took personally or yeah. or or i mean I, what I said at the time uh and i st- i still believe is that I say worse things about myself when I sing hymns so
0: <laughs> wow yeah that's pretty good <laughs> I am a nasty person uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: with with no heart left to myself wow. I need to be mm-hmm. uh need to be um and had to be born again so yeah
0: ah. yeah. So you had an interesting experience then because all of us, whether somebody is a very much a pro Trump supporter or somebody is very antagonistic or mm-hmm. like what I would imagine the majority of American Christians are, which is somewhere in between. Um, was it hard for you then to, you know, now, even now looking back on this first term um, and discern fairly um, what was good and what was not so good about it because there had been some personal Aspects to it for you specifically.
1: No, because I, I really don't, um, I really don't live my life for the approval of mm. any president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I hope for, uh, every president to do well and yeah. to show character and, mm-hmm. uh, all of those things. Um, yeah. so
0: Yeah. Well, and that's certainly admirable. And 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 as I've said, I think Christians can learn quite a bit from how you handled that situation. I remember at the time thinking, President or at the time he was just a candidate, but Donald Trump tweeted about Russell Moore. You know, the two things didn't seem to be in the same part of my brain. I'm sure it was even more astounding for you.
1: Um,
0: But you know, we are on the forefront of another presidential election, and maybe one of the most interesting, at least in my lifetime. Um, and, and for me as a as a Christian pastor, it seems like more often than not, it, especially in the last four years, but even long before then, that voting for Christians sometimes comes down to the single issue of, of abortion. Um, and and while more and more I've continued to see a lot of commentary pointing towards arguments for welfare reform and other social changes as an alternative uh, for overturning Roe versus Wade, a few weeks ago that conversation became ever more prevalent um, with potentially now three Supreme Court justices appointed in one term, uh, pointing towards the possibility of a reversal or at least a revisiting of Roe v. Wade. Do you, as someone who stays very much aware of what's going on in the political realm, do you count the Trump presidency as a win for Christians who are opposed to abortion now?
1: Well, I'm not a political pundit uh, who racks up wins and and losses there. I mean, I think uh, everyone knows my concerns about the current political climate in the country, and uh, I also am uh, committed to seeing uh, violence against vulnerable people, Mm -hmm. uh, unborn and born, uh, come to an end. Um, What I think Christians need to recognize and know is that Even if Roe is repealed at some point in the future, however that happens, Mm -hmm. and I pray that it is, but even if it is, I think there are some Christians who assume that means that the life conversation is over when uh, really all that will do is to return this to 50 states and uh, 50 states in a culture that is uh, very much committed to. A pro-choice uh, view of abortion, and so I've I've sort of warned people for years um, that we need to have the tension between uh, seeing uh, the hope that yeah. is uh, the fact that there even still is a pro-life movement. That's yes. a message of hope, yeah. But also a sense of reality, uh, and the and the reality is that we have to have uh, both uh, legal. Mm-hmm. And cultural change uh, in order to address this problem, because yeah. one of the most chilling things for me was several years ago hearing from a woman uh, who worked in an abortion clinic who said she was talking to some reporter and she said, you know, one of the assumptions about my clients is that they're pro-choice. Right. She said, almost none of my clients are pro-choice on abortion. hmm. Uh, she said, and none of them believe the um, the messaging of this is just a clump of cells. Mm-hmm. They they think that what they're doing is wrong, and they think that they have no alternative right. in this uh, situation. So uh, if uh, someday Roe is repealed or partly repealed or what have you, mm-hmm. um, that means that we've got a lot of work ahead of yeah. us yeah. in terms of creating alternative structures and mm-hmm. Uh, creating a, a culture that that really does see vulnerable human life as made in yeah. the image of God.
0: Well, and I think that what Christians need to begin praying through is their own hearts, because if, like you said, Roe versus Wade is, is completely overturned, which may may not happen like we right. might expect it to be, it's, it's not quite that simple, right. is I think the question then is how many churches are going to become committed to adoption mm-hmm. and, and fostering and helping um, single mothers or or children from broken homes. And, and I'm not sure, I'd love to hear your opinion. I'm not sure many churches are prepared for that conversation.
1: Well, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I see uh, a lot of things going on in churches that sometimes, uh, sometimes people don't see mm-hmm. uh, because I just am able to be in so many different yeah. places that encourage me uh, when it comes to, for instance, there 's sort of a caricature of pregnancy resource centers or what um, you know, what some people call crisis pregnancy centers right uh, that somehow these things are are just about uh, the unborn children, mm-hmm. uh, which is important and significant mm-hmm. on its own, but those are the very places that are ministering to uh, women in crisis across the board mm-hmm. spiritually. Uh, physically, uh, getting them out of, uh, helping them to get out of abusive uh, situations, spiritually and everything else. And so there are, there's a lot of things going on in congregations that are really encouraging. Now, one of the things I've found is that when it comes to, for instance, um, adoption and foster care, and those sorts of, of issues, one of the things that weighs on me with that is opioid addiction. Mm-hmm. And, and those sorts of, of issues, because in some of the places where there's the greatest need, uh, say in the foster care system, the same, the same sort of thing that's driving that in those communities is also affecting the churches to such a degree yes. that they don't have the resources uh, that they need internally mm-hmm. to be able to to minister to that. So right. that's going to be something, that's what sort of keeps me up at night and
0: mm-hmm. thinking,
1: how do we... Uh, how do we equip churches in places when the church itself is under siege from yes. um, all of those those forces and problems?
0: Right. And so, what has your encouragement been these last um, well these last years working with the commission, and even these last couple of weeks and months as the conversation has turned to a more tangible discussion of what hey, there might actually be change coming soon. How have you been encouraging pastors, Christians, churches, to develop more of a holistic view of it's not just about seeing abortion overturned; It's about seeing the church ready to minister to a whole litany of needs.
1: Well, there really hasn't been a change over the past uh, few weeks because sure. uh, this has always been a, a sense of saying to uh, Christians and to congregations, look, um, it's important that we don't have roe mm-hmm. uh, which pretends as though abortion is somewhere in the Constitution, right, but uh what we're going to have to have is a lot more than simply addressing that one. Uh, problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I think there are many people who are and have been working hard at that for a long time. Yes, um, But also when it comes to, sometimes I'll caution people, you know, sometimes Christians will look at, say, opinion polls mm-hmm. uh, and say, well, look, uh, look at how the pro-life uh, movement is, is winning. Right. And what I will always caution them about is we don't want to be in the same situation that we were in with, say, pornography. Mm-hmm. uh there there was a time uh a, a generation ago when pornography was thought of simply in terms of magazines in uh, convenience stores uh, yeah. maybe right. videos in hotel rooms and if you put pressure on those businesses then you could mm-hmm. get rid of porn but yeah. well, what was right around the corner was a technological revolution mm-hmm. that would just make that uh not only ubiquitous, nearly, uh, but also would uh, would get rid of the main obstacle that was keep that would keep people who weren't involved in pornography out, which is that those people didn't want to see themselves or be seen as consumers yes. of pornography. So the technological revolution uh, made this uh, exponentially worse. Right. Well, we're in a situation now where I think most people, when they think of abortion, they think of clinics. And mm-hmm. that's true. But we're moving at a time where it's becoming more and more chemical, mm-hmm. um, which is an entirely different uh, yeah. sort of uh, sort of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone is not going to a clinic, but is, say, ordering pills off yeah. of uh, the internet, that's much more difficult yeah. to be able to address. So we have to we have to keep our eye on the ball uh, here. And, and fundamentally what that's about is teaching people not just to be against abortion and not just teaching people to love uh, pregnant women in mm-hmm. distress, but also teaching people why we yes. do that. Mm-hmm. Because behind that mentality, uh, which shows up in all sorts of other ways, mm-hmm. Uh, there is this sense of of seeing people in terms of their usefulness. Right. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And that's, that's not the place that Jesus mm-hmm. has, has called us to be. So yes. uh, that, has to, that has to not only happen, but we have to continually be reminding ourselves of that and continually asking ourselves, who are we making invisible right now? Mm. So in the same way that someone would say, I don't want to think about uh, this as a child. I want to think Mm -hmm. about this as a pregnancy. If I think about it at all, who are the people around us right now that we are doing that with? So rich man and Lazarus uh, sort of mentality where, Mm -hmm. where you just don't want to see Lazarus at the, at the gate Mm -hmm. that has to, we have to constantly be asking ourselves that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you mentioned that we're drifting towards a a position of seeing people as their usefulness, what they bring and and what is a person worth. And, and it seems like everywhere you turn in the entire world right now, it is a question of, well, which lives do matter and uh, what, where does human life begin? And there is this intrinsic view that human life more than ever potentially inside and outside the church, there's a conversation about human life, but yet, like you said, we're drifting towards a utilitarian mindset to where, if the polls show that we are mostly in favor of a pro-choice view set, uh, mindset, then somehow that makes that more okay. And, and you actually alluded to uh, an article that you've, you wrote in 2013 called Is the Pro-Life Cause Winning? And in that article, you talked about this and said, it's easy to identify as pro-life when one sees nothing really at stake for 40 years, almost now 50 Uh, Legal abortion has been securely anchored in American law, even after the rise of the religious right Two Reagan administrations, three Bush administrations. Abortion is legal everywhere in the United States. With this, the case, it is easy for Americans to see the debate as a matter of theory rather than a matter of policy. And here we are now on the eve. Now it's almost as if you were writing prophetically, of course, (laughs) without realizing it, because now we're looking at now the conversation matters somewhat more tangibly than it ever has at least from a political aspect now that we are seeing a conversation with tangible implications regarding abortion i want to give you an opportunity what would you say to the christian who whether it's because of the polls whether it's because of how they feel about particular candidates what would you say to the christian who is perhaps reconsidering their stance on abortion in favor of a pro-choice view
1: (sighs) Well, this is one of the reasons why I've been uh, very concerned about linking up uh, the pro-life uh, view to any particular personality or mm-hmm. any particular sort of movement. Because mm-hmm. uh, then you have a personality-driven or even a, a, a right. movement-driven uh, sort, of, uh, sort of mentality where someone, uh, someone thinks that he or she is signing up for everything that has to do with that <laughs> right. person or mm-hmm. that, that movement. Um, and so that's a, that's a, a problem yes. uh, in American life. What, what I would say is the case for all of us on multiple sorts of, of issues is to break free from the kind of herd mentality and the sort of tribalism that is everywhere incentivized in American life. Which, which says you find a group of people, you absorb yourself into them, you put your conscience in a blind trust, and the people they love, you love, and the people they hate, you hate, and the people that they say aren't people, you say aren't people. Okay, that, That's not, uh, as Christians, we don't have that sort of option. That, that works in a Darwinist sort of universe. It doesn't work in a universe that we know Uh, is in fact the reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and we're being shaped and and formed uh, to rule and reign with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what we have to do then is to be willing to uh, love uh, the people that Jesus loves and to stand by the vulnerable people who are being harmed no matter (laughs) where they fit In the expectations of the people around us. So it doesn't matter whether or not you're in a situation where um, maybe your your political uh, sort of uh, the, the people that you resonate with politically would say, don't pay attention to unborn children. Mm-hmm. You pay attention to unborn children and it doesn't matter if you're in the sort of a place where the people of your political uh, leaning or your cultural leaning say refugees ought to be mistreated. Mm-hmm. You, you, you love refugees and yeah. you, I mean, so all of those things are are true and that what that's going to mean is Christians who are always out of step with uh, everybody's expectations mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're not signing up for lordship with anybody, right? Uh, except for one one man, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and that's going to that's going to put you in a situation where um, where you're going to have to mm-hmm. uh, you're going to have to be different in, in the same way. I mean, Jesus had plenty of opportunity mm-hmm. to say, "I'm with the Pharisees." Yeah. on how we deal with Rome, or I'm with the Sadducees on how we deal with Rome, or I'm with the Zealots on how we deal with Rome, or I'm with the tax collectors. He doesn't do that. He has mm-hmm. a, a completely different way Yeah, that actually challenges all of those uh, things. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be true. So I actually think if you want to know where the real uh, issue is, bring it down from the big lofty sorts of debates that take place in the Supreme Court or uh, the the sorts of debates that happen on social media. Mm -hmm. Look at what's happening in a middle school cafeteria. Who is the person that nobody wants to talk to? Because if you talk to that person, you're going to be associated with that person. That's, that's the reality that takes place throughout all of life. And you see the exact same dynamic taking place in nursing homes. Yes. I can't believe you're uh, talking to Gladys,
0: <laughs> you know, or yeah. sitting
1: with her. But you, you have to cultivate the sort of impulse uh, that says when I'm, when I'm looking at someone, uh, mm-hmm. I'm looking at someone who is reflecting back to me uh, the God who created me and who mm-hmm. loved me. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of people, just as Jesus is teaching in Luke 10, there are all sorts of people on the side of the road yeah. that I'm able to say, this is, this is a bit player in mm-hmm. the, the story of my life yeah. when that's not the case, mm-hmm. because you're not actually the main character in the story. You're, you're, <laughs> right. part of, uh, you're part of all sorts of other people's stories. And so I mm-hmm. think that is the fundamental impulse. Yeah. That has to be reworked and, and changed.
0: Yeah. And uh, it, it alludes to, like you said, uh, taking, taking our focus off of the, the lofty and grandiose issues, looking at quote unquote real life and as ministers, as pastors, it, it leads us to a question of this new landscape we're looking at, it, it, not just in the United States, but in in the world. Um, but specifically for you and I, being being American, uh, the, in the world of missions and, and missiology, we often talk about unengaged, unreached people groups and unreached people groups. And we typically think of very faraway tribes and very faraway countries and people. Um, but right now we're experiencing new frontiers, you and I, because we live in a world that sometimes is called post-Christian, mm-hmm. um, you know, opinions like yours and opinions like mine, Are becoming less and less popular um, whereas in our country they used to be mainstream Um, and so you and i though are southern baptists (laughs) and we are part of the largest protestant denomination in, in the country in the world but our denomination has a reputation for seeing evangelism and doing what you just said as far as engaging the culture engaging the people around us sometimes there's a caricature drawn of of evangelism as Leaving a tract at a uh, at a table for your waitress, um, making evangelism and engaging with the culture very much uh, a smaller part. So, in your opinion, what does evangelism and engaging the culture need to look like as Christians seek to engage with the world, asking the questions that they're asking now in 2020 with the pandemic, with with racial tensions, and presidential elections? What does evangelism need to look like now?
1: Well, I actually wish that we were in the situation where uh, people were as- just assuming that leaving tracks and, uh, and so sure. forth is enough. But the problem is we're in a time where uh, very few people are even doing that. Exactly. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that would be an improvement. Uh, it, it, <laughs> it's a lot easier to mm-hmm. say to someone, hey, I see why you're leaving this tract on the table and that's good, but you should also have come conversations with people that you know, mm-hmm. that's a far easier thing mm-hmm. than saying to people who aren't engaged in any form of evangelism, you mm-hmm. ought to care about this. So I, I kind of wish that were the case. And when it comes to, I, I don't like the language of post-Christian right? because it assumes that there was a time when, uh, as you put it, when our uh, viewpoint or our way of life In terms of following Christ, was mainstream. I don't Mm -hmm. think it was. I I don't think that the way of Christ has been mainstream in any human culture since uh, Eden. It's Mm -hmm. it's always a sign of contradiction, and it just that sign of contradiction just manifests itself in different ways, sure, um, in, in different times and in different places. And so, I think we have an opportunity right now. Uh, where the, the church can embrace the strangeness uh, mm-hmm. of what the gospel is um, and, and talk to people with a gospel that has uh, the power to actually transform. And also, I, I, one of the ways I see this is um, I'm on college campuses, university campuses all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll often, every time, I have atheist and agnostic uh, students who uh, come and ask questions. And what I've noticed is uh, very few of them are actually hostile. Right. Um, and, and the ones who are, are hostile because they grew up in a context where they saw a bad form of Christianity, mm-hmm. or at least that they perceived as bad. Sure. Uh, and so they're, they're sort of reacting to grandma or uncle Ronnie or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the pastor, wherever or the youth pastor, wherever. Uh, but most people ha- are, are honestly curious about why mm-hmm. would somebody believe something as bizarre <laughs> as uh, the fact that somebody has been raised from the dead and is the most yeah. important, this crucified person is the most important person. Mm-hmm. And in fact is the way, the truth and the life that uh, that's the the reality there. So we have the opportunity to address uh, the world with that gospel in a way that is a lot more similar mm-hmm. to where Christianity was emerging in the first place in right. a really tumultuous sort of uh, Roman empire mm-hmm. with all kinds of, of, uh, uh, of beliefs and, and practices, mm-hmm. uh, that we were more in a situation like that than we are in a time where everyone is sort of expected to be a half Christian.
0: Right. Yeah,
1: it's, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a lot harder to talk to a half-Christian, <laughs> right. so-called, mm-hmm. than it is to talk to someone who's a pagan.
0: Yes. 100%. Because the,
1: the, the person who is sort of, uh, you know, uh, almost Christian mm-hmm. is often able to say, well, yes, yes, yes. They, they have the familiarity mm-hmm. uh, that causes... those think of uh, C.S. Lewis uh, talked about uh, why he was writing... Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, is because he said uh, there's a kind of familiarity mm-hmm. uh, that causes people to shut down. But he said, I wanted to go around the watchful dragons that are guarding the gate <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to get at the the heart. Yeah. Well, I, I think that a lot of those dragons of um, familiarity are mm-hmm. going away. Mm-hmm. Well, that gives us the opportunity. But I think one of the problems, honestly, that we have as Christians is I think sometimes that we have a kind of either superiority complex, mm. but often it's more of an inferiority complex where someone thinks in order for me to have a conversation with my neighbor who disagrees with me, I have to know how to definitively answer every question. Right. And I have to know how to, uh, And and I think uh, some of it is Christian popular culture where Mm -hmm. it's watch so-and-so own this atheist or, or whatever, Mm -hmm. but that's not, that's not how it works. Uh, How it works is bearing witness to the truth Mm -hmm. uh, in humble love through the power of the spirit, often over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there are all sorts of things that you're going to be asked to which the answer is, I don't know. Yes. I, I'll, I'll think about it. You mm-hmm. don't have to decisively uh, answer uh, every question. You just have to bear witness to Christ yeah. and, to, and to grow in Christ and to be willing to speak to people. And I think sometimes Christians think, well there's no way that people would be open to my talking to them mm-hmm. and are shocked when that actually uh, is yeah. the case. Right. I mean, when I, when I talk to, I was just talking to a non-Christian right before I came on with you. Uh, when I talk about uh, these things, the response is sort of a uh, fascination. Mm-hmm. That I mean, you really, uh, you really think that is that? Really? And that, I think that's the case for most people. Uh, sure. especially when uh, you're seeing them as a human being and you're mm-hmm. loving them as a, as a human being. Yeah. So you don't have to be in some sort of a, a, a constant debate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, right? You just have to bear witness.
0: Yeah, I, and I think that that's a beautiful point. I, I had the privilege of uh, having as a guest on the show before a couple weeks ago, Andy Bannister, who's an apologist out of mm-hmm. uh, the UK. And he, he said, we should be happy people are asking these questions we should be happy that people are you know whether it's a protest of course we don't need to rejoice in the violence and the vitriol that we're seeing but we should be happy that people are openly asking questions about lives that matter (laughs) and why are why is there violence and why is there hatred because it gives us an opportunity to to answer and in one way that i've seen you address this because because like you said it is difficult ministering in this uh you and i are both in the bible belt and so it's very difficult to minister in a context where pretty much everybody thinks they're a christian but very few yeah. people live in a uh, salt and light faith driven life and the way that i've seen you deal with it somewhat is just brutal and i'm going to say prophetic honesty i i don't know where you stand on the word prophetic but just a, an honesty that just very much speaks to the truth of the matter and, and you alluded to uh, comments like this um in a 2016 New York Times piece that you wrote, I think it's amazing, by the way, that the New York Times is still having Christians such as yourself write op-ed pieces. Uh, that, that gives me hope. But uh, you said about uh, evangelicals such as you and I who desire to return to the more peaceful days of old, going back to when, when you said, I don't think we ever were mainstream, you wrote in that op-ed that people who have that point of view are blinding themselves to the injustices faced by their black and Brown brothers and sisters in the supposedly idyllic Mayberry of white Christian America. That world was murder sometimes literally for minority evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if the answer, one of the answers that you have found over the years of doing ministry in a very Christian environment, but continually running up against, anything but Christian behavior, Christian points of view, especially towards people of different ethnicities and faith than ours, is the answer just maybe a loving, sometimes it can be brutal. Of course, that op-ed is, is very um, pointed, but is the answer a Holy spirit driven honesty that just calls out evil when, when, when we see it sometimes.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, I think the answer to this is if we're, if we're following Jesus, one of the things that strikes me about Jesus Um, is if you look in the Gospels, especially, I think this is especially emphasized in the Gospel of John, Mm -hmm. Jesus knows to whom he is talking, and he knows what level of uh, gentleness is needed or what level of uh, clarity, you know, for for, for lack of a better word, of of pointedness Mm -hmm. uh, is needed in that situation. And you see that replicated Uh, later on in the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. So um, very uh, pointed language sometimes and Mm -hmm. very gentle. Now, we're not going to always get that right. Right. But I think that the way that Jesus speaks to the uh, woman at the well Mm -hmm. is very different from the way that he spoke to the religious leaders and scribes. Mm Mm-hmm. And the way that he spoke to the religious leaders and scribes was very different from the way that he spoke to Pontius Pilate. Mm-hmm. And so some of, that, uh, some of that means having an awareness of, uh, of who the person is that you're talking to. So there are going to be some people that I have in my life where I'm going to say, okay, I'm patiently sort of taking a long game with this person. Maybe there's something in this person's life that really does need to be addressed. But I say, I can't address it now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start with this, uh, this smaller thing. Mm -hmm. And and then we're going to work toward that. And then there are other people where I say, no, what really has to happen is sort of an intervention Mm -hmm. uh, of, of coming in and shaking the person and saying, what are you thinking? Sure. And that's what I need in both directions. sometimes. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, but you're going to get that wrong because we don't, we don't have the perfect insight that, that Jesus has, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's what I think we should aspire to. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what you do is just recalibrate. Uh, There, there have been, um, you know, I have this even just in parenting. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have Mm -hmm. one of my children who has a, who's just so easygoing. Mm -hmm that his sort of default position is everything's fine. Everything's good. <laughs> and then I have another uh, son who is so, he has such moral clarity that everything for him is an issue of light versus darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, he has rigorous standards for himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he fails, well, I have to treat those two children differently. Sure. Because if I treat the one the way that I treat the other, I'm going to have the opposite result. And I actually think that's the case with the way that we we deal with everyone. Mm-hmm. Sure.
0: And I, I think that that's a, an amazing way to look at it. From my perspective, um, as we mentioned before we got on, I grew up in Wheaton, which is a central hub of, I don't yeah. know, American Christianity. But, you know, right. I mean, I grew up there. And so I saw that. And then I went and did my undergraduate studies at a Southern Baptist seminary and now uh, pastoring in the Bible Belt, and, and I've seen that too often our our default response as American evangelicals, as Southern Baptists, whatever group we happen to be a part of, is our too often our default position is not to deal with it appropriately, but instead kind of cover our ears and just hope and wait for the problem to go away. And so it seems as if every few years we're faced with political tensions and things like that. It seems though like right now, perhaps this is a turning point for many of us to say, we really need to learn how to have these conversations. We really need to learn whether it's a Pontius Pilate uh, situation, as you said, or or it's a Samaritan woman, or it's the, the religious elite. And so, um, I think uh, I think that you're 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 spot on there. And it, and it leads me to ask before I let you go about the forthcoming book, The Courage to Stand. And and, and amazingly coming out just this Tuesday in describing it, the description of the book says gospel courage is nothing like the bravado of this anxious age. The call to courage is terrifying because the call to courage is a call to be crucified. I don't know that there's anybody better to speak to that, especially to a young generation, you know, looking at the next few years and and saying, gosh, we're going to have so many difficult conversations as Christians. We're going to, but we're going to have a lot of opportunities. So as someone who has stood before a Pope, Presidents, politicians, and pastors—what does gospel courage and standing up for the Christian faith look like for the Christian who doesn't, who's not used to being in that position yet, but certainly will be here in these next few years?
1: Well, I think every every Christian is, mm-hmm. and I think every Christian is in terms of um, what what Lewis called the inner ring that mm-hmm. that uh, and that can happen in the break room of the Mm -hmm. grocery store where, where somebody works, it can happen uh, anywhere Mm -hmm. uh, in a church, you know, what, wherever. Um, But the way of Jesus is a way that, that forms us into the shape of the cross. Mm -hmm. So in encourage you to stand, I I talk a lot about Elijah, just Mm -hmm. because uh, one of the things that struck me about Elijah is that often when I would think of Elijah, the image that I would have is that moment at Mount Carmel when he's calling down fire from heaven mm-hmm. uh, where he's just triumphant. And mm-hmm. you know, I, we all wish we could have those, uh, those moments mm-hmm. <laughs> all the time. But what I realized is if you're looking at where is sort of the hinge moment in Elijah's life, it's actually not in that moment of great triumph. It's where he goes from there Mm-hmm. which is out into the wilderness, out back to uh, Mount, uh, Mount Horeb, and he finds God at work in terms of his weakness, in terms of his loneliness, in terms of his sense of irrelevance. Well, every Christian is going to have that sort of crucible in some way or the other. And I think that the tendency that we have is to sort of buy into a sort of discount rate prosperity gospel, mm-hmm where we assume if things are going well for me, that means that God likes me. <laughs> and if I'm going through a time of right. difficulty, it means that God is angry with me mm-hmm. when the, the Bible is not at all teaching that in either right. of those two uh, directions. And so I think that we, we have to see courage, not the way that we see it in an old Greek epic mm-hmm. or an Avenger spell. <laughs> Uh, we have to see courage in terms of the way that Jesus uh, pictures it, which is head, head head going straight to the cross, uh, and beyond. And that's going to be the case in your life as well. So yeah. it's not a matter of, um, not being afraid. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of pretending like you're not afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a matter of in your fear, uh, asking what is it that God is doing in my life right now and following that way. That's a hard thing to do. Very difficult. Uh, But it's where, it's where I think Jesus is leading us. Well, very difficult, but,
0: but with people like you, uh, you know, demonstrating that and how you deal with people who disagree with you, how you deal with people who agree with you. Um, I think many Christians have found a lot of inspiration from you. I know I have. And so for those listening, uh, make sure to check out the book, uh, the courage to stand, and like I said, follow Doctor Moore on social media so that you can see I, the the encouragement I draw from you is how you deal with these difficult topics. And while many other people, like you said, you are not a pundit, uh, you don't profit or politic off of these issues. Uh, you you just like a pastor are. are are trying to shepherd Christians and say, hey, this is, how, this is how we should be approaching this as best as you know how. And so I very much appreciate that about you, but I also just very much appreciate your time today. So thank you for, for being on the show today. And I know that many Christians are going to be blessed by this and, and, uh, and by just the, the way that you carry yourself. So thank you, Dr. Moore, so much.
1: Well, it was my honor. Thanks for having me.